gets tiring how quickly life goes. But this time of year, uh, especially the first week in August, always reminds me of summer vacation, when you can hopefully be done with June and all the open houses. July, there's a lot of weddings in July, and August is the time to kind of prepare for the oncoming school year and just kind of mellow out. My family would always take the first week off of August and just go somewhere for summer vacation. The first summer vacation I ever remember, I was about six or seven, we, um, my dad rented a lodge out in Virginia Beach, Virginia. We'd pack up our station wagon. We had one of those station wagons with the wooden side panels. You'll see kind of a picture of what we had. And we would pack a carry-on that would go on the top, and my dad would say, okay, it's gonna be about an 11-hour trip. We're gonna wake up at four in the morning. Hopefully you guys can sleep halfway through, wake up, and we'll only have a couple more hours. That didn't work too well, because you know, when you get ready for vacation, you cannot sleep. And along the way, my mom would pack us little bags with our names. She'd go to Joanne Fabrics and get some stuff and embroider our names. She's a really good mom. I had a great mom. And in those little packs, we'd all get like a fruit juice. We'd get one of those, um, you know, the square cheese things. You rip it off and you put those sticks in there and you dip the stick in. And she'd give us each our own little game. Like my sisters would get word search and I got this cool sticker thing where you pass a car that was from Louisiana, you could take off the Louisiana thing and put it on. It was a lot of fun. But then halfway through, you know, I've got four sisters. I have one sister that is mentally challenged, and she'd drool a lot, and she would scream like this, like that, just out of the middle of nowhere. She's mentally handicapped. And so we'd sit next to her, like, Mom, she's drooling again. Can you tell her to quit drooling? And then my sisters would poke each other and yell at each other, and my brother would always be upset, you know, and we'd be in the back seat. And I would just be sick and tired of it. So you know what I'd ask? I'd say, hey, Dad. Are we there yet? How long do we have? How much more of this? I can't take it anymore. And it would get bad because back in the day, this is in the mid-70s, you know, you wouldn't go to a McDonald's or anything. You'd go to the rest stop. When you'd go to the rest stop, my dad would say, all right, come on. You'd be on the clock. You know, go to the bathroom. Get in here. We've we got to get there. And then we'd want something to drink. And all we had was my mom's green, green thermos that she'd unscrew and go, it's, here's some nice cold coffee for you, son. Like, Dad, when are we going to get there? And the worst is when you'd get to Virginia. Because at the state of Virginia, you'd think you'd be there. And you'd be like, Dad, we're there. Chris, we have four more hours. But Dad, Chris, we have four more hours. I feel like the earth is this station wagon. And I'm ready to be done with this ride. I don't know about you. I have more and more heard everybody after they watch politics get on social media. They're like, when is he coming back? Because I'm tired of this. Where other people are looking at things where, man, what is happening with just families, genders, all of this stuff. This has to be a sign we're getting close. Do you know the disciples had the same issue? And that's what Matthew 24 is all about. Matthew 24 is all about the signs of the end. And Jesus is going to talk about the end. And so we're going to go through this passage. I have to be honest with you. It's, it goes into some deep weeds. So we're going to try to figure that out. But before we do, 
just to give you a little bit of a setting, this is known as the Olivet Discourse. I always thought, wow, that sounds so spiritual. Olivet Discourse. They even name universities Olivet. Ooh, what is Olivet? All it means is Jesus is sitting on the Mount of Olives talking to them. So it means from the Mount of Olives. So let's begin in verse 1. Jesus left the temple, and this is Herod's temple where the sacrifices were happening, when his disciples came up to him to call his attention to its buildings. Do you see all these things, he asked? I tell you the truth, not one stone here will be left on another. Every one will be thrown down. As Jesus was sitting on the Mount of Olives, that's where you get Olivet from, the disciples came to him privately. Tell us, they said, when will this happen? And what will be the sign of your coming in the end of the age? When are we going to get there? What do we got to look for? How do we know it's getting close? So that's what we're going to talk about today. But to talk about it, I just want to give you a little bit of, I want to give you a way that I approach this, and I'm going to call this the Sermon Color Code. I'm going to have different colors in the backgrounds of my slides. Each color represents the way I think we should approach this teaching. One color is going to be black. When you see black as the background, that means listen up, because this is a teaching that you're going to be responsible for, so take heed. White is more or less just information. I'm going to share with you some ways that people interpret this scripture, some ways people speculate, and give you some definitions. Red is going to be my take on it, and the majority of what I think our church follows. And it's going to be a, like what I call theological speculation. You have three types of teachings in the Bible. One are absolutes, things that are so clear that really, whether if you accept it, you're a Christian. If you reject it, you're not. Absolute teaching. Then you have convictions. Convictions are teachings that come from both the tradition, the way you divide the scripture, and honestly, from just belief. This is a conviction. And then you have preferences. Preferences are things that should not divide us. That really aren't that big a deal, like what color of chairs, if you wear a tie or not. But today is a conviction. And then the last color is going to be blue. Blue is pastoral admonition. This is what you should do with this information. How you should live your life. So we're going to start with black, verses 4 through 8. Let's read verses 4 through 8. Jesus answered, Watch out, that no one deceives you. For many will come in my name, claiming I am the Christ, and will deceive many. You will hear of wars and rumors of wars, but see to it that you are not alarmed. Such things must happen. But the end is still to come. Nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. There will be famines and earthquakes in various places. All these, all these are the beginnings of birth pain. So this is black. And he begins in verse 4 by saying, watch out. And what he means by this is don't be fooled by this stuff. When this stuff occurs, don't fall for 
people are going to come along and say, it's the end, tomorrow it's over. And then grow anxious and sell everything and, you know, basically just pull out of the world. Don't be fooled. These are alarms, but don't let them be false alarms. Such things must happen. So he's going to talk about three false alarms. One is going to be false prophets. False prophets are going to come along and say, I am the Christ. And every age since Jesus has been here has had false prophets. For the last 2,000 years, there have been false prophets coming out of the woodwork. In my lifetime, I know about five major ones. You probably heard of, the first one I can really think of is 1974, I'm reading Time Magazine. On the front, there's all these people dead next to a big thing of Kool-Aid that was poisoned with cyanide. Jim Jones was this guy that said, if you follow me, Jesus is going to come. Charles Manson would say he's the Messiah. And then you have the Haley Bop comic group, or the group from Waco, or even if you ever heard of the Moonies, with Reverend Sun Young Moon would marry people in Korea. And they would believe because they were married, they're going to be brought into eternal bliss. Messiahs and false messiahs are going to be coming left and right. Don't be alarmed. Don't be alarmed. Second warning sign is wars and rumors of wars. World chaos is going to take place. And the reason why is our earth is broken. It's fallen. And hatred dwells in the heart of man, according to Titus 3. And so just because you have a massive war doesn't mean it's in the end of the world. In the early 1700s, there was a theologian named Jonathan Edwards. A lot of, of you know, like scholars like to study Jonathan Edwards. He believed the French and Indian War was the sign that Jesus is coming back. Every time the French would take over a fort, he would say, oh, the kingdom of the Antichrist is gaining a foothold. And then the English would overtake the fort and say, oh, the kingdom of God is here. That's the 1700s. Move forward a little bit, you get the Civil War. Abraham Lincoln, he believed that basically all the blood that was shed was God's retribution on our sin of slavery. And God was coming back. Then you have, of course, World War I, the war that is going to end all wars. If you've ever studied World War I, it was dreadful. It was horrid. And never was a world caught up into a war where people were slaughtered like they were dead. And then when the war was over, people would say, that was it, it's over, peace. And then you have a worse war, World War II, with basically some of the worst leaders ever, Stalin, Hitler, Pol Pot. Joseph Stalin killed 35 million of his own people. That's horrible. And then that ended, and then you get Korean War and the Vietnam War, and now we have the Ukrainian War, and I hear people saying, uh-oh, it's the end of the world. No, it's not. It's a false alarm. And then you have, the third one is natural disasters, earthquakes, just cataclysmic events. And when you see cataclysmic events, that's not necessarily a sign that tomorrow Jesus is going to be at your doorstep. I mean, the bubonic plague, when the bubonic plague happened, it killed two out of every five people in Europe. That's incredible. 
You're, so you're going to have volcanoes, wildfires, Kentucky floods, which are horrible right now, hurricanes, COVID, monkeypox. It's the end with monkeypox. No, just read about it. You can avoid monkeypox. It's kind of easy. I'm not going to tell you how to do it, but it's really easy. Really easy. So don't worry about it. But it's the end of the world. It's always been the end of the world if this is how you're judging. In fact, he says in verse 8, if they're called birth pangs. Birth pangs is the idea when a woman gives birth, nine months is the expected period. All the way up to those nine months, the pains will get more and more, longer and longer as a sign that it's about ready to give birth. And so the writer, J.T. France, says it like this. Such natural occurrences are part of normal experience. As part of the world's woes, they are no more than the beginnings of labor pains. There is worse to come. I don't know if I like that part. There's worse to come. And in itself, it implies not yet. And catastrophic events are not in themselves the sign of the end. And you have in this heart of people, there are some people who are like, but I just feel it. I know he's coming back. And I'll have people say, do you think Jesus is coming in the next couple of years? In my heart, I feel it. I do. But just because I feel it doesn't mean it's true. And just because I feel it more than a lot of other people doesn't mean my feeling means he's going to come faster just because I feel it. I try that with the lottery. It doesn't work. <laughs> I feel these numbers are going to do it. Because what we're going to learn in a second is this teaching called the apocalypsis, or the appearance of Christ in a moment, out of the blue, when you're not even ready for it. It has nothing to do with you pushing it. So let's go to the next section, 9. I'm going to read through 21. Then you will be handed over to be persecuted and put to death. You'll be hated by all nations because of me. At that time, many will turn away from the faith and will betray and hate each other, and many false prophets will appear and deceive many people. Because of the increase of wickedness, the love of most will grow cold, but he who stands firm to the end will be saved. And the gospel of the kingdom will be preached in the whole world as a testimony to all nations, and then the end will come. See, when you're standing in a holy place, the abomination that causes desolation, spoken of through the prophet Daniel, let the reader understand, and let those who are in Judea flee to the mountain. And he talks about fleeing, get out of there. And in verse 21, for then there will be great distress, unequaled from the beginning of the world until now, and never to be equaled again. If those days had not been cut short, no one would survive. But for the sake of the elect, those days will be short. Okay, so I want to talk about this period for a second. If you notice, it's on white background. I'm going to call this the seven years of pain. You'll understand this in a second. But there are five ways to interpret what I just read. And the way that people come into it, usually they have a preconceived grid. And with that preconceived grid, then they will slot those verses into where it fits. One grid that people have is what's called a preterist grid. Some people believe everything I just read already took place back in 70 AD and probably another couple hundred years, but it's all over. 
All that stuff I just read already took place. So and in 70 AD, Nero came in, tore up Jerusalem, and there was incredible pain and suffering. There's only, I got a couple problems with that interpretation. One is the book of Revelation. What do you really do with it if you handle it honestly? And secondly, the language. Look at verse 21. Verse 21. For then there will be great distress, unequaled from the beginning of the world until now, and never to be equaled again. So the distress that happened, they'll tell me this is talking about 70 AD. The distress that happened in 70 AD is greater than the distress that happened with Hitler and and Stalin with the Jews? Hitler killed 8 million Jews. That, to me, there's no, there's no equaling what happened in 70 AD than what happened in World War II. And then this says the pain that is going to be suffered by the Jews, which I think in a second, is never going to be equaled again. Huh. So I think preterists are not being honest with the text. Then you have post-millennialists. Post-millennialists sort of are preterists. They believe this is still talking about AD 70, but since AD 70, things are now going to get better and better and better and better. And what they have to get ultimately so good that Jesus is just waiting for everybody to actually become Christian, and then he's going to come out of the sky and set up his throne because people are ready for him. I have a problem with this one because of verse 12. Verse 12 says, because of the increase of wickedness, the love of most will grow cold. So what Jesus is saying is, as the birth pangs increase, so will wickedness. The world is not getting better and better. It's getting worse and worse. It's called theological entropy. It's getting tired out. So when you have 2 Timothy chapter 3, it says you're going to have, in the last days, people who are lovers of self, lovers of money. They hate their parents. They have a form of godliness, but they deny its power. And an increase of wickedness will continue to increase. Which it's been doing in our country, pretty obvious. Then you have amillennialism. Amillennialists believe that scripture is allegorical. So I'm really not able to understand it, and it's a waste to try. All that the book of Revelation in Matthew 24 is, is in an allegorical account of good versus evil. Don't try to figure it out. Just be encouraged that good will win in the end. The problem I have with that is language again. Look at verse 15. So when you see the standing in the holy place, the abomination that causes desolation, let the reader understand. Why does a reader need to understand if it's just allegory? Why does he need to know the specifics of the abomination of desolation, which are talked about in Daniel, and then they are referenced in the book of Revelation? Why take it serious if it's allegory? So I have a problem with this approach to Scripture. And there's another approach, and I call it who cares? You know, who cares? Who cares? Can we just quit talking about this? It causes so much division. Nobody knows. Why even try? Just enjoy life. Just love one another. That's all you got to do. Problem I have with that is verse 35. Verse 35 says, Heaven and earth will pass away. My words will never pass away. His words really matter. The book of Revelation really matters. 
Daniel chapter 9 really matters. Zechariah 13 and 14 really matters. Ezekiel 38 really matters. So what I'm saying is you just can't ignore it and sweep it away. you got to kind of deal with it. So how do I deal with it? I'm going to call this, this is what I would say is what we, majority of leadership here, agrees to, which is premillennial, pre-trib, eschatology. Eschatology means our view of the end, or when we arrive, how are we going to make it to Virginia Beach? So Virginia Beach means eschatology. And I believe it's, there's a key to it. The key to understanding to me is verse 32. And then I take the key, and then I understand what he said behind that key. And verse 32 says, now learn this lesson of the fig tree. Look at the fig tree. As soon as its twigs get tender and its leaves come out, you know that summer is near. Even so, when you see all these things, you know that it's near, right at the door. So he's saying, the fig tree is the key. The fig tree is the key. What is the fig tree? We talked about the fig tree. Do you remember we talked about where Jesus cursed the fig tree because it had leaves but no fruit? This fig tree has been reborn and it has leaves and it's tender and it's, gonna, it's producing fruit. The fig tree that Jesus talked about was the nation Israel and how they rejected Jesus. This fig tree is a reborn Israel. Let me show you. Go to the book of Hosea. I want you to see this verse. This is fascinating because I was at Moody. We had this teacher that was a Messianic Jew. He was raised in Israel, went to Hebrew University, and we asked him about the end times. And he said to me, to understand all the end times, it's Hosea 3, 4, and 5. And listen to what it says. The book of Hosea is written to the nation Israel, to the nation Israel who rejected God, just like the prostitute did Hosea married the prostitute and she came back to him and he reinstated her. Israel's like the prostitute who left God and then he's going to reinstate her. And this is the process. Verse 4 and 5. For the Israelites will live many days without king or prince, without sacrifice or sacred stone, without ephod or idol. Live many days where? Where? In the land. They're going to live many days in the land without king, prince, sacrifice or sacred stones. They are going to be there, the people are going to be there, but they're not going to be worshiping God. They're going to be a secular society. They aren't going to be uh, theocracy. They're going, not going to have a priesthood. They're not going to have a sacrificial system yet. But they're going to be in the land. I was listening to a statistic yesterday. This is interesting. So the United States, the average amount of babies being born every year is 1.6 per family of babies. That's how we're growing. In Israel right now, it's 4.6 children. It's fascinating. Israel is growing one of the most uh, impressive producers of fruit, of all kind of food. And Israel right now is coming alive. But look at verse 5. Afterward, that means after the Israelites are in the land, they will return and seek the Lord their God and David their king. They will come trembling to the Lord in the blessings in his last day. To me, that is the key. When you start seeing this happen, all of these things are going to start taking place. What things? This is the timeline. Go to Matthew 24. 
Again, I want you to, you know, really study this, learn this. But I'm just going to go through it really fast. In verse 9, then you will be handed over and persecuted. You as the Jewish people. He's talking to the disciples and the Jewish nation. You will be handed over, persecuted, put to death. You'll be hated by all nations because of me. So here's what happens. Let me just show you what's happening. So I believe, according to Daniel 9, there's one period of seven years left. It hasn't started yet, but when it starts, what's going to happen is God is going to re-engage his people Israel. It's going to pour a spirit of David, a supplication in them. They're going to become awake again. He's also going to punish the nations for their sin, like really punish them. And at the end of seven years, that's going to be over. That's going to be the end. To kick that off, God has to do something with the church. So I believe he's going to rapture us out. He's going to take out the church, and then he's going to take the Holy Spirit who indwells the church, and he's going to be, they're going to be poured out on Israel. Romans 11, 25 to 27 is very interesting. It says, Israel has experienced a hardening in part until the full number of the Gentiles come in. After they come in, he's going to pour out a spirit of supplication. You can read that for yourself. To me, it's very clear. What does that mean? The full number of the Gentiles is the church. When the full number of the Gentiles come in, I believe he's going to snatch us out take us to have a wedding supper with Jesus, and then he's going to unleash his wrath on the earth, and he's going to use the Jews to be his witnesses on the earth. That's what's happening in verse 9, really through 21. So verse 9, he's talking about persecution. Jews are going to start being persecuted. You can read Revelation 7. It's incredible. It talks about 144,000, 12,000 from each tribe of Israel then all of a sudden, after they're sent out on the earth, they're going to be sharing the testimony of Jesus. There's going to be this large company that they bring to Christ because of their testimony. They're also going to be martyred. And so this is talking all about many false prophets will appear. Um, in the, verse 14, the gospel of the kingdom will be preached in the whole world as a testimony to all nations. And then it says the end will come. In chapter 7 of Revelation, after the Jews go out, chapter 8 begins by saying, there was silence in heaven for a half hour, because God is now going to start pouring out his wrath. What is the beginning of the poured out wrath? Verse 15. Verse 15, so when you see standing in the holy place, the abomination that causes desolation spoken of through the prophet Daniel, let the reader understand. Then let those who are in Judea flee. Here's what he's saying. The abomination of desolation is in the middle of the seven years. Satan, the angel of destruction, is going to fight Michael, the guardian of Israel, the angel of God. Michael's going to throw, he's going to throw Satan down onto the earth. Satan is going to inhabit a person known as the Antichrist. The Antichrist is going to go to the temple and have slaughter, what a lot of scholars think is, our, is pigs, which are an abomination. And he is going to then start unleashing on the Jews. That's why he says, when you see it, run. 
People believe there's going to be a sanctuary place, the city of Petra. If you ever watched Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade, Petra's that building carved out of the cliffs. But the Jews are going to be hidden there by God while Satan unleashes his wrath on the earth and then God unleashes his wrath on Satan. That's why it says, if you see verse 22, actually verse 21, for then there will be great distress, unequaled from the beginning of the world until now. Unequaled distress. You don't want to be there. It's going to be bad. That to me is what the seven years is going to be. I could, I could give 17 sermons on this. I don't have time. But from what I'd call a pre-mill, pre-trib perspective, Jesus is going to rescue us in a moment, and he's going to rescue the Jews in a moment, which is the next point. Look at verse 29. Let's start at 26. So if anyone tells you there he is, out in the desert, do not go out. Here he is, in the inner rooms, do not believe him. For as lightning that comes from the east is visible even in the west, so there will be a coming of the Son of Man. Lightning Jesus is going to come in a moment. Wherever there is a carcass, there the vultures will gather. Immediately after the distress of those days, the sun will be dark and the moon will not give its light. Stars will fall from the sky. The heavenly bodies will be shaken. At that time, the sign of the Son of Man will appear in the sky and all the nations of the earth will mourn. So this is called the apocalyptic return of Christ. Apocalypse means it's just going to happen in a moment. In a second, listen to how um, one writer writes about this. Fleming Rutledge writes, This teaching, meaning the apocalypsis, is not about the inevitable final stage in an orderly process or an accumulation of steps before a goal. It is a dramatic rescue bid into which God has flung his entire self. The situation is so desperate that nothing else will do. So God must enter from the outside to rescue those on the inside. So that's why it says, they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of the sky with power and great glory. And he will send his angels with a loud trumpet call. They will gather his elect from the four winds from one end of the earth of the heavens to the other. So he's just going to come in a moment. And I'll tell you what, when he comes, it's over. It's over. This kind of approach, this saving action, apocalyptic action, happens all the time. It happens when you get saved. You don't get saved through some process of going to church. You get saved in a moment when God opens your eyes. I once was blind, now I see. All of my old is now brand new. Jesus saves in a moment. He did me. This is what's going to happen in the rapture. When the church, all of a sudden, the final number, nobody knows, he's going to snatch us up in the twinkling of an eye. The dead in Christ will rise, and those who are still alive will meet the Lord in the air. And so we will be with the Lord forever. Then you have seven years, and man, the birth pangs are going to come. This would be like the last week of a woman's pregnancy. And then at the end, God's going to come with his angels. Jesus is going to come with riding on a white stallion. This is Revelations chapter 18 and 19 where there's carcasses and 
read it, it's bad. But Jesus is going to come, and on his thigh is written, King of kings and Lord of lords. And I'm telling you, when it happens, it's over. It's over. Happened to Paul on the Damascus Road. His name was Saul. He was persecuting the church. Jesus shows up in the sky, blinds him, and says, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? And in a moment, he went from the biggest persecutor to Paul, the greatest evangelist ever known to man. When God shows up, it's over. So what do we do? What do we do while we wait? I have things we should not hope in, and then one thing we should hope in. So while we wait, hope is not to be found in about six things that I think you and I are trying to find in it. Number one, it's not to be found in politics. Human beings, men and women, cannot rescue you. Only Christ can. It's not to be found in leaders, judges, Senate, Congress, bills. It's not politics. Hope is not to be found in money and economics. A bigger paycheck. Less inflation. Cheaper gas prices. I'd love it, but that's not hope. Hope is not to be found in health and fitness and amazing abilities. Hope is not to be found in a perfect relationship. I found the perfect spouse or girlfriend or boyfriend. And in the same sense, hope is not to be found in the perfect sexual identity. We live in a weird time where people think, if I find my right sexual identity, everything's going to be great. Probably it's going to get worse. Hope's not found in that. Hope is not found... In the success of your children, whether it be their degree, their sports, their life, it's not your children in which hope is found. Hope's not found, you might not believe this one, but hope is not going to be found in a multiverse. In, a, in that there's all kinds of different universes out there. And if I hope that, you know, that uh, I will do that, oh, what's that one guy that can go like this and there will be a new port? Wordhole. Doctor Strange isn't going to show up and usher you into a new multiverse. Do you know that's do you know movies are fantasies, by the way? A lot of people live in them. You know, a lot of Comic Con people really believe that's the answer. It's weird, it's not. And hope is not found in ignoring reality. And saying it just doesn't matter. I'm just gonna love and that's enough. No, look at verse 35. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will never pass away. His words need to be taken seriously. Do you know in the book of John, chapter 12, verses 47 to 50, Jesus says, you will be judged by one thing when you see God. When Jesus comes, or when I die, even if I die today, it says man lives once and then faces judgment. When I face judgment, I'm going to be judged by what Jesus said. That's it. So where is hope to be found? Hope is to be found in his word, according to verse 35. They're solid as rock. The promises he gives in this book are true. Hope is to be found in his return. 
Hope is to be found in this moment that Jesus gives enter in a second. So if you think you're financially not making it, I have seen Jesus answer apocalyptically. When you weren't expecting it, he shows up. Same with health, same with politics, same with whatever you're going through, Jesus will show up and save you, even if you're lonely and you don't have that relationship that's going to make everything perfect. Not about, it's not about finding hope in that. It's about finding in this person who can enter my situation at any moment. Jesus is an, is an apocalyptic God who's always working. That's why Psalm, Psalm 86 says, Dear God, bend down, lend me your ear. So I just want to talk about my family trip one more time. So we're driving in that station wagon. It gets kind of smelly in there after a while. And you really, like, I don't like the trip. I just want to get to the beach. And I'd complain, and I'd complain, and my sisters would complain, and they'd call me little Chrissy, and it really got bad. And I, I hated it, you know? I hated it. My dad would say, if you guys don't stop it, stop your whining, I'm going to pull this car over. And we knew that's not something we wanted to happen. I did not want my dad to pull the car over. But sometimes, before it got to that, you know what my dad would do? Here's what my dad would do. He would be driving. Sometimes he'd drive with his forearms on the wheel, you know, and kind of lean forward. But then he'd drive, and he hears all the complaining in the back. He'd start really slowly. He'd go like this. Just what makes that little old man think he could move a rubber tree plant? Anyone knows an ant? Move a rubber tree plant. They go, come on, you guys, sing with me. Oh, but he's got high hopes. He's got high hopes. He's got high apple pie in the sky. Hopes, and he goes. So anytime you're feeling low, instead of letting go, just remember that ant. And he'd make us go. Whoops! There goes another rubber tree. And then that would be the first song of a hundred different songs that we're driving along the road. And I'm telling you, when I think back on vacation, I remember the ocean. But you know what I wish I could do again? Is go in that car with my four sisters, my brother, and my dad, and sing. And just go on the country road and sing. I remember one time we were actually coming home from Virginia Beach, and we were in West Virginia. My dad started up, almost heaven, West Virginia, Blue Ridge Mountain, Shenandoah River. And we'd all start singing it. Country road, take me home. But I'm telling you, the trip was what it was all about. And so often, we in the church, all we do is complain. When is he coming? When is it going to be over? Get off my back. All of those drooling people in the church. And John writes in 1 John chapter 1, I write these things so you can have fellowship with the Father, fellowship with the Son, fellowship with me. And verse 4 says, so our joy will be made complete. Instead of worrying about the end of the ride, why can't we enjoy it right now? He's with us. Start singing. Because when you do, 
you are going to start attracting people that are just longing for someone who believes this truth. Someone who's done complaining and they have everything they need in Christ in this moment. Because he's got high hopes. High apple pie in the sky. 